If you'll join with me in today's scripture reading, we'll be reading from Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. In our Pew Bibles, this is page 979. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Your parents love these verses, huh? <laughs> Very, uh, verse 1 is, is really, really familiar to me because it was actually a verse that we had all of our white belts memorize in our Taekwondo ministry. And in order for them to pass on to yellow belt along with like sparring and forms and all this other, but there, there was like an oral component to it and they had to memorize Bible verses and this is actually the very first one that they have to memorize in order to advance. So there are actually hundreds of kids out there that actually know this verse from our ministry. Um, most of them adults now actually. So I, I do keep in touch with some of them. Uh, most of them I, I've lost touch with, but there are a few that I did keep in touch with and, and most of those kids are actually really, really good people now. And it was this outreach that we had to the community uh, many years ago. And a lot of these kids coming from really, really tough backgrounds, there are a few of them that didn't end up in such good places like in prison and jail. But for the most part, most of them are contributing well to society and, and, and it's a blessing to society. But this is a verse that I, we had them memorize because it was so important to partner with their parents to give them the best chance to have a relationship with God and, and to be good people that positively affect their communities. And so, like I said, we weren't always successful, but I think we did a lot of good for, for most of, of those kids and, and, and people. And a lot of what we did centered around these verses, even though these verses were written a couple of thousand years ago. And some people might be wondering, as we study the Bible ourselves, that these verses that were written to this Ephesian church, which is in modern-day Turkey today, and if they allow travel there, you can visit these ruins today. It's actually pretty magnificent. But how can these things that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago be relevant to our world today? And I can tell you that there are several hundred people who can testify how these verses affected them just by us sharing them with families and their kids. Just through our small martial arts ministry that we had, there's, there's been a huge positive effect just from one verse, let alone the many that we've had them memorize over the years. Because by the time they tested for a black belt, they would have had to know like two dozen verses. And we can go back to quiz them on anything back any of those two dozen verses we can ask and if they didn't know they, they wouldn't pass so they had to know all of these verses but when Paul wrote this letter he didn't write it to be read in sections like we we break them up week by week here chapter by chapter verse by verse and the we, reason why we do that is we, we want to dive deeper into them he wrote it like any of you would write a letter or an email or a text that you don't read just one sentence in your text right you read the, the whole text or you, you read a whole letter, you read a whole email, you don't just kind of parse it out. And it's the same thing here. This letter was to be read in kind of one shot. And there are benefits to going at the pace we're going, but there are detriments 
from going at this slower pace. And one of those detriments is that we forget what we looked at several months ago, like <laughs> many months ago when we started this, right? So throughout this study, we've looked at this really important structure of Paul's letter. And, and some of you might be thinking like, oh no, not this again. We've heard this like so many times. But I, I think it's really important, especially if you haven't heard any of the previous studies, that how this book is divided, that chapters one and three were written with these indicative verbs and it speaks to who God is, what God did, why God did what he did. And it's not until chapter four that we get these imperative verbs that are giving us instructions on how to live. But it is only for those who believe in chapters one through three to live out chapters four through six. And it's not for those who believe in chapters one through three to demand that everyone live like chapters four through six. So there are these parting verses from chapter three that are really important before we get into any of the how to live components of chapters four through six. And I kind of want to remind us of that before we jump into our verses today. So chapter three, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Does that sound familiar at all in terms of like a benediction? Right? Because he's making a very clear distinction. That's chap this is my first half of the letters, guy. Guys, like this this is the first half, and, and that's how chapter three ends. It's the indicative part of this letter. And then now he's gonna change gears and he's gonna go into this with imperative verbs and, and then instruct us on how to live. And so how does chapter four start? And and we have to remember this is for those who believe in chapters one through three, and this is how chapter four starts. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, the Bible is not a bunch of just moral directives of what to do and what not to do. It is for those who, by grace through faith in the gospel, have been saved, chapters 1 through 3, and we are simply living out who we are in Christ. And we recognize who we once were and who we are becoming, as described in Ephesians chapter 2. I'd love to read the whole chapter for you, but for the sake of time, I just want to take out select verses and just read some snippets out of chapter 2, starting with verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Skip down to verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Down to verses 12 and 13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Last ones, 18 and 19. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And it is in this context of chapter 3 that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Chapter 4 and on. We who are in Christ are given further instructions on how to live in chapter 5. And again, for the sake of time, I'm just going to pull out select verses from chapter 5, starting in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise. Verses 17 and 18. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And lastly, verse 21, before we get into our verses today, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we have these verbs. Imitate, walk, understand, fill, filling, submit. And it's all built upon the grace of God in our lives. What God did, chapters 1 through 3, from the inside that manifests itself in how we live, chapters 4 through 6, and how that shows on the outside. Not that we do in hopes of changing ourselves from the inside ourselves. Like there are some people that, you know, if we just change our behaviors, we're going to be able to change ourselves. That's not what it's saying. It's to be spirit-filled, that we're going to be changed from the inside, and, and the manifestation of that is chapters 4 through 6, that being filled with the Spirit leads to this life, that the Spirit-filled life leads to submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, which is then how we got to sharing about husbands and wives in the past several weeks, parents and children today, and next week, and then workplace submission in the near future. So today we, we share about children submitting to parents. A couple of weeks ago I, I pointed out that evangelism and discipleship are not just done through talking. There are more ways to share the gospel and to live out the gospel that it is done through our marriages. That people observe how reconciliation works amongst people who were once hostile towards one another. And the same can be said about our relationship in the context of our verses today and our relationship with our parents and our children. I need to confess to you that the most sanctifying process in my entire life, and I think it will be for the rest of my life, is being a parent. 
bar none. Marriage is not even close. Not even close. Parenting. There's nothing that has pointed out my own sin and my need of Jesus than being a dad. There's nothing more that has driven me to trust Christ more so than being a parent. And my kids' friends are watching my marriage. Actually, last night they had a slumber party. I have four additional girls to my four girls. There's eight girls in my house, nine including my wife, and then there's just me and my male dog. So, but all of those kids have watched my interaction with my kids, all of their friends. And they have so many conversations amongst themselves that I've kind of overheard about how their parents fight, about how their parents have been talking about separation or how they're talking about divorce. And I've also overheard them talking about, my parents are gross. My, my kids are saying this about me and Katie. My parents are gross. They're so like lovey and stuff. They're so gross. And they talk about our family dynamics and who we are as spouses towards one another and parents. It's a huge testimony to everyone observing us, especially our children and their friends because they're just watching. They're looking. And if you treat your spouse or your children poorly, your testimony as a Christ follower is shot. You don't have one. You can't say anything to them. And it doesn't matter what you say or how much you know about the Bible. But you know what's powerful is all it takes is one thing for you to change everything. That if you just simply humbled yourself right in front of them and repented and then changed and, and walked in love and light and wisdom, your testimony then becomes really powerful. And it's in the span of minutes that that can happen. That you can just say, like, you know what, I, I was wrong. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done this. And so this is the same towards your spouse. This is the same towards your, your children, your parents. Now, most of us have parents, whether biological, adoptive, foster. We all have parents or, or guardians in our life. All of us were children. And we need to pay careful attention, especially if we are parents, guardians, and especially if we are still under the care of parents, guardians. Because Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 28. Listen to this, because it's a really, really eye-opening verse, or a couple of verses. I'm going to read from 2 Timothy also, but first Romans chapter 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then here comes this list, and listen carefully, because this is who God gave them up to their debased minds, were people filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient, to parents. Have you ever noticed that in that list? You know, you usually look at the other things and you kind of bypass those things because most of us as we're reading this aren't like children under our parents' care anymore, so you just kind of bypass this. But it's, it's in there. 
And then he also wrote this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. They're in this list, that in the last days, one of the things I regularly remind my daughters of are these verses. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. <laughs> but one of the things I do regularly remind my daughters about is how they choose their friends. Because it's so important. Like it, it has so much influence on who they're becoming and who they are. And so I always warn them about choosing their friends and asking and observing the friends that you choose, are they obedient to their parents? Like it's key. Because are they being honest or dishonest with them? Are they willing to obey or do they just want to disobey? Are they respectful of their parents or are they disrespectful? And it, it's so important. Again, our jobs as Christians isn't to change people's ethics around marriage or, or how to raise their children. We need to share the gospel. And the gospel changes people. That once someone is in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, then they will walk in love, light, and wisdom. That as a husband, I'll love my wife as Christ loves the church. That as a father, I'm not demanding obedience from my children just as I don't demand submission from my wife. I live the gospel. I walk a spirit-filled life empowered by the spirit to walk in love, to walk in light, and to walk in wisdom, not because I'm great, but because I've confessed my own sin to know that I can't do those things without God. And that I've recognized that I have a desperate need for Christ in order to live this way in chapters four through six. It's Christ who changes us. It's Christ who changes our children. I was so heartened last night because my daughter Sienna, she's my second, she's 13, she's really diligent about her devotions. And she does them every night, without fail, she does them every night when we travel, she puts that book in her luggage, no matter what, she, she does it every night and it's just this awesome habit that she's developed and that devotional is completely destroyed. The binding's messed up, the loose pages everywhere, she's just barely holding on. And she loves it, and we've tried other ones. We're like, hey, honey, why don't you try these other ones? It's, but she likes that one, and, and it's hers, and she likes that she's like, gone through it so many times. And, and last night I got up at around 1.30 because I can't sleep through the night. I get up several times a night just to check up on things, to check up on my girls. And at 1.30 I see a light in her room. So I go into her room, and she's asleep with this devotional open on, on the date you know, last night. And I don't know how many times that's happened because that happens pretty often. That I have to go into a room and turn the light off and that devotion is open to that date. That's God. It's not because I'm an awesome dad because there was never a time I even told her to do a devotional. That's God. We bought it for her. It didn't just like appear. Like, you know, we bought it for her. But like she took it from there. And she's been faithful reading that thing, and I've never, never reminded her to do it. She's obedient. She's not perfectly obedient, but she's actually pretty close. Like, I'm so proud of that kid. 
And I'm so thankful to those of you who have invested into her since she was a baby in these ministries all the way through these teenage years. So thankful for all of your prayers and for that devotional, for the Bible, but mostly to the Holy Spirit changing her from the inside. I was at a conference many years ago before I was married, before children, and Dallas Willard was the keynote speaker at this conference. And during the Q&A, someone asked him, you know, how, how can we ensure that our children walk with Jesus? And he shared something that has stayed with me because I didn't even have kids. I, I wasn't married. And it, it stayed with me throughout my life that it's still etched in my, in my mind. And, and he said, you need to remember this, that you cannot control your children. And it was just a phrase that I've just always remembered in my head. You can't control your children. Always remembered this. And so when I had children, I remember what Dallas shared. And the most important thing I can do as a father is, is pray for my kids and do the things that I can control, which is love their mom and live this spirit-filled life in front of them and repent when I'm wrong. And not be so proud to not be able to apologize. And not be so proud to think that I can't make mistakes. Now here's an observation I want to address regarding Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That Paul addressed children in his letter, which means that Paul was expecting that children would be present when the church read this letter out to the Ephesian church. That's what I'm assuming. And I bring this up because I think it's something for parents and our church to consider. When are children included in our worship and our study of the word of God with us? It's something that we've been thinking about all the time. And I'm thinking about more and more. And I read things like Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 3 where it reads this. And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women. You would think that that encompasses everybody, but no, there's this other phrase. And those who could understand. I'm assuming that this is children who can understand. And the ears of all people were attentive to the book of the law. And so it's just something for us to consider you know, some of us are, are kind of afraid to think like, oh, you know, the, the church has to have an awesome youth group. The church has to have an awesome children's ministry. The church has to have all, all these different things. I have to let you know, the church I grew up in, none of that. We had none of it. No middle school thing, no high school thing. It was the boringest thing in my life. Like, it was horrible. They didn't even speak my primary language. It was done in Chinese. And not only was it done in Chinese, it was like my weakest dialect of Chinese. But it's the Spirit. The Spirit filled me. I was in the main service. And I question this often, and it's something I still wonder about because the church has struggled for so many years trying to figure out, why are so many young people leaving the church? And it has me wondering if part of it is that we've separated them from it. That's why. It's not that they're leaving. We've just never invited them. That they're not included. They're in that middle school ministry. They're in that high school ministry. They're in that college ministry. So that when they go off to college, 
They don't know what to do. Like, it's not college ministry anymore. So when were they ever invited with us? And how will they transition from these student ministries to being part of the church if we don't help them with it? If we don't help them transition? It's just more things for us to think about amongst the very few things that our church has to think about, right? We don't, we don't have anything to think about. But back to our, our verses. Let's first start by defining children because children isn't the age. It's the relationship, right? If your child is 40 and still depends on you emotionally and financially, they're still a child, just a 40-year-old child. But, you know, your, your kid can be 18, but is independent, not a child. Always will be your, your child, right? Your, your child, but as an independent adult, they are an adult. They're not a child. So if you're a college student that is still taking money for, from your parents for like tuition or for room and board and, and expenses and you're like, but I'm an adult, you're not an adult, all right? You're, you're not an adult. You're an adult by age in terms of you can vote and you can be put into an adult prison and tried as an adult, but you're not an adult because it's not about age. It's about relationship. You're still depending on mommy and daddy to pay for things. You're not an adult. And as parents, we're, we're custodians, we're guardians. We don't own our kids, right? They, they are made in the image of God and they each need Jesus Christ as savior. They need the gospel and we are the primary people to share it with them. Not our high school ministry, not our middle school ministry, it is us. And those years go by fast. As some of you have evidence because some of you held my 15-year-old as a baby. Tony actually visited us in the hospital and held Isabella. I think she was like less than a day old. He's right there. You can ask him. Some of you held her. She has her driver's permit. I mean, it's so crazy. She has her driver's permit. And another thing about children is that children are sinners, flat out. I've had some parents say, like, no, they're, they're, they're born into this world and they become sinners because they come out, like, pure. They come out, like, holy. False. <laughs> False. From conception, they are sinners. The Bible says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Chapter 58, verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. From birth. I had a, a former elder of the church. He just had a newborn. And he told me, that newborn has already thrown tantrums at us. That newborn is already manipulating us. Every child is like us, sinful. Because how does a newborn have such animosity towards people who keep them alive? It's a sinner, that's why. You don't have to teach preschoolers to lie. You have to teach them to tell the truth. 
You don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach them to be covetous. You don't have to think them to think wrong thoughts. You don't have to teach them to, to be selfish. You have to teach everything opposite of those things. Those are the things you have to teach. These other things, it's natural. They are naturally sinful. You don't have to do anything and they do these things. You know that same sweet Sienna I told you about who does her devotional every night since she could read was the first child of mine to cuss at me at two years old. <laughs> she called me a scary tiger. You a scary tiger. I don't remember why she called me that. Why do I say she cussed at me? Because if she had any of those cuss words, she would have used those. And this was the worst thing she could think of to call me. All that vitriol and anger and animosity and hostility. And she, when she said it, she, her face was so angry and she was red and she meant it. That was a cuss word for that kid. You scary tiger. The worst thing she could think of to call me, that sinner. But even though they have their faults, we do have to remember they are a heritage from the Lord. Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Might not always seem like it, but they're a gift. They're a reward. And a gift that still needs grace. Because gifts do come broken and we need to fix them. And we're all saved by grace. Grace that Jesus Christ gave us. Jesus Christ who was sinless. Who, who died on the cross for our sins. Dying in our place. And if we believe in him, we are saved. And when our children fail, they need to know that the grace of God is greater than any sin that they can possibly commit. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And when children do this, it honors God. It isn't a suggestion. The, the word obey is an imperative verb. It's a duty. It's an obligation. It's an expectation. Now remember, this is addressing those who believe in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3. So... It is a duty, obligation, expectation that parents train their children to love and obey God just as much as children are to obey and to honor their parents. But why should children obey their parents in the Lord? Verse 1 tells us, because it's right. Because it's the right thing you, to do. When you don't obey, you put yourself in harm's way. I didn't realize that that was like kind of Dr. Seuss's, but... Um, Parents know what you should eat or drink. Parents know how to cross a street. And it's exhibited in nature, isn't it? When like a, a giraffe has a baby or when a wildebeest has a baby that you don't wander off on your own because you'll get eaten. Right? You, you follow me. You do what I do because I've stayed alive all these years to give birth to you. So obviously I know something. 
Right? And in what civilization did it thrive when there was disobedience to parents, when there was disobedience to authority? Chaotic societies don't thrive. It's never happened. Now one can argue that it's happening right now. But I think you're proving my point. Leviticus 19 verse 3, every one of you revere his mother and his father. Now why this principle of submission in the Bible? Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That God will bring together people who were once hostile towards one another. So whether that is racism, classism, ageism, or any other ism, all the things that people discriminate each other for, God is going to reconcile in Jesus Christ, and he's going to bring together families at war with one another, and husbands and wives and their children as they do as they're instructed to do, that there's this order of how things are to be done. It comes down to how can a child love? How can a child obey God, whom they have not seen, if they don't love and obey their father and mother, who they have seen? How is that possible? And that's not to say that parents are perfect, but the calling to obey parents isn't because they're perfect, or that they're smart, or that they're capable. It's ultimately to obey the word of God. Because God, who created this family structure, knows how it works. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. We are to teach our children the word of God. And children obeying their parents isn't a suggestion for a Christian family. It's God's command. God called you, he gave you the Holy Spirit, you understand his word, and you are empowered to carry this out. So that when God unites all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, there's evidence of that unity between you and your spouse, within a family member, as a worker. All these things that he's mentioning in chapter 6 in terms of the principle of submission, that those are evident in the Christian. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because it is right, verse 1, and because it's rewarded, verse 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, this isn't saying that by honoring your parents, you're not going to have any problems and your life is just going to go well for you. I wish it was just that formulaic and then that'll be that. But we all know that that's not true. Some of you have honored your parents and you're like, why am I living this life? Nor is it guaranteeing that you're going to live past 100 by honoring your parents. Like, oh, I'm going to live a long life if I just honor my parents. No, it's not a guarantee for that either. Some people have had their life cut short even though they honor their parents. And people who honor their parents still face hardships. You will face hardships no matter what you do, no matter how you live. You're going to face hardships. There's no guarantee that you're going to live past 100 no matter how good you are or whatever. So then what is this verse saying? Well, God is with those in Christ while experiencing good or bad. God is always with us. And those in Christ who honor their father and their mother, they experience wellness and live long in the land 
because they have this healthy family dynamic that no matter what hardships there are, we get together as a family and we get through it. We live long because even this year is as a second and, and this minute is, is as a second and, and we're living long together because we get along together. We are together and we have good familial relationships and work well with one another despite the hardships that there is this love and there's this trust, obedience, submission as instructed in the Bible and we live well together. You know, we, we all live by some rule. So is it going to be the Bible or is it going to be something else? There's always some type of rule we're living by. Our, our society wants to rule itself, that everyone has equal voice, that everyone it's democratized and everyone has equal voice and everyone thinks that they know what's best. And it just circles back to Genesis 3 again, doesn't it? We're just back at that chapter and verse again that we know the difference between good and evil when the Bible has already clearly stated what is good and what is evil and that we, each one of us, is sinful by nature. So how can broken people think that they will create a world of peace when they can't even get things straight with their spouse, when they can't get things straight even with their own families? to be peaceful within a smaller setting, to possibly think that we can bring about peace in a city, in a community, in a world, in a country. That is just foolish, isn't it? You can't even do it with one person, and you think you can do it with billions? God created the universe. He knows how it works because he designed it. He made it. He knows what marriage is. He created it. He knows what a family is. He knows how all those dynamics work. He designed it this way. But we live in a world that wants to define for itself what is good and what is evil. And that is precisely the sin that Adam and Eve did and every person after them in dealing with sin since Genesis 3. We think we know better. We think we know better than God. We think we have all the logic and all the reasoning and all the intelligence and all the intellect and the experience and all these things to think that we know better than God. As people in Christ, we don't think that. We need to direct people to the Bible, to be in the family of God, in Christ, chapters 1 through 3 believers, not to be believers in chapters 4 through 6, we are believers in chapters 1 through 3, and then chapters 4 through 6 follow that because we are filled with the Spirit to then do these things. But chapters 4 through 6 aren't the gospel. Chapters 1 through 3 is. And our children are confused because parents aren't doing their duties at home. And churches are compromising on the Word of God. Children need to be taught the Bible and what the Bible teaches is good and evil and not defining that for ourselves. It is not a personalized morality. And so often we want to ask a person, is this good for you or is this bad for you or, or how do you feel about this? Which are very fair questions. But the thing is, is those are follow-up questions, not the primary question. The main primary question what is right or wrong according to the Bible? That's the primary one. 
Because once that is defined, then you can move on to these other things and deal with those things, but then you have a baseline to know what is right and wrong, not for yourself, what it means to me. No, it's not that. It is what does the Bible say. And it's not what's good or bad for you if it's just simply wrong. It's not how you feel about something if it is simply wrong. God created the world as it should be and it is ruined by sin, by our ancestors who thought they knew the difference between what is good and what is evil and we've been dealing with the same thing ever since Genesis 3. It is the same thing. But in the last days, God will unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. He will reconcile and restore all that is broken in our world our families are to be a testimony to that. And it's really challenging because I know a lot of us come from broken families, mine included. I come from a divorced family. My parents are divorced. It's hard to see that. It's really hard to see because my dad's a devout Christian, my mom is not, but it's hard to see it. I've had to think through a lot of different things. I've had to go through therapy. I've had to go through lots of different things to finally arrive at a place to see God a little bit more in a healthy way. My sister had to go through the same thing, and many of you have. I think it's 50% of you probably have the same statistic as I do, and you fall in the same category as I do. And some of you have homes where it just was stacked against you. You were dealt a bad deck of cards. We all have our own things that we have to deal with, right? We all have our own things that we have to deal with. No one has this life just smoothed out for them and they don't have to deal with anything, whether it's gonna be health or family relationships or, or education or money, whatever it is, you're gonna have to deal with something in your life, your whole life. The awesome thing, as a chapter one through three person, you have a family. You have that parent. You have that guardian who you can go back to the Bible and say, uh, you know, parent or guardian, you're supposed to teach me about God. It says so. You're obligated. It's your responsibility. It's an expectation. You're supposed to teach me about this. But then that parent or guardian also can say, you need to obey me in the Lord, for this is right. That there's a structure built into those things. That there's a love built into those things within a Christian home. It's supposed to, and if it's not for you and your parents or, or your family is confessing to be Christian, they're not perfect. They are not perfect. But do as the Lord says. Obey them anyway. Ultimately, you obey Christ. Ultimately, you follow the Bible. You can read it yourself. Learn from it yourself. The Spirit can fill you too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, you have for us this kind of uh, built-in way of support, and, and yet sometimes we still run astray. And I pray, Lord, that 
there's a protection for our children, that you would shield them from the things that would lead them astray, that you would bring them closer to your heart, where you're at, that you would call them, and that they would obediently follow. There's nothing more important as a parent or guardian than to know as believers in chapters one through three that our children will also be believers in you. There's nothing more important than that for us, God. And so we ask, Lord, for that to happen sooner than later, for that understanding to happen, for them to know you, to be able to walk in love, to walk in light, to walk in wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your communion elements, let's bring that out. And if you don't have that, just raise your hand and we can get, get that to you. This is a, a sacrament we do every week at our church as a remembrance, as a celebration for the sacrifice of Christ. And taking upon our sin, taking our place on the cross so that we don't have to die this death of eternity. And so we take this wafer as a symbol of the body of Christ and we take this in remembrance of Christ. And the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ. Let's take this in remembrance of him until his return. Lord Jesus, we have these sacraments that you left for us. And we pray, Lord, that we are able to commune with you in a very intimate way. That we are able to connect with you in a dynamic way. That this isn't just rote sacrament that we are doing, but that it is meaningful. That we are able to experience our intimacy with you and the promise that you share with us in Jesus' name.